Welcome to the New Books Network. Well, good afternoon, everyone, and welcome back to the NPN Central Asia Studies podcast. My name is Luke Anceschi, and I will be uh, your host this afternoon. And I must say, I'm, I'm extremely happy to have on the show this afternoon uh, Adrienne Edgar, who's the author of this incredibly interesting book, uh, just out uh, with Cornell University Press, and the book is titled Intermarriage and the Friendship of Peoples, Ethnic, Mix- Ethnic Mixing in Soviet Central Asia. Uh, hello, Adrienne, and thanks for being on the show. Hello, Luca. Thanks so much for inviting me. So, Adrienne, I'd like to, to start, uh, really, with with a question that uh, looks at the the research you've done from, from, a, from an author perspective. What did uh, spark your, sparkle your interest in this topic? I mean, this is an incredible book. You've done more than 80 interviews. You travel around Kazakhstan and Tajikistan. You met people with different, uh, for different backgrounds, different generations, different outlooks. And uh, I understand there is a personal dimension to all of this. So, How did the personal influence the academic in your authorship of the book? Oh, okay. That's a a very interesting question, something I've thought about a lot uh, lately. Um, Yeah, well, originally my interest in the topic of intermarriage was sparked during my, while I was doing my research for my book on Turkmenistan, uh, when I happened to come across newspaper articles from the 1920s in which people were Uh, Turkmen communists were debating intermarriage and whether it was okay for Turkmen men, male communists mostly, to marry Russian women. Um, And they talked about the effect this might have on their national identity and the creation of a Turkmen nation in in the Soviet Union and so forth. Uh, So that was kind of the initial spark. Um, But I think part of what motivated me to pursue the topic more intensively was that was, was the personal dimension that I myself am in a mixed marriage. I was aware of many of the, my husband is a Nigerian American, and I was aware of many of the issues involved in uh, mixed marriages and, and, uh, and as well as some of the scholarly literature on mixed marriages. Uh, there's a huge literature in the United States and other parts of the world relating to intermarriage, but very little on the Soviet Union. And so I guess it was sort of a combination of these things that that got me interested, both the personal and the academic. Yeah, so, I mean, one question which I ask to, to every guest on the show, it's about um, the methods that you've used while researching intermarriage and affairs of other people. So, uh, this is a book researched pretty much with a uh, oral history approach. So, I was wondering if you could, could please tell us more about uh, how you approached the research for the book, and why did you feel oral history methods were the way to go to research the book and tackle this issue? Yes, no, that's a, a great question. Well, as you know, when we're re- researching the Soviet Union and and, and well and or Central Asia, uh, to some extent, necessity <laughs> breeds necessity is the inventor of our methods. So. Uh, uh, so to some extent, uh, scarcity of sources, uh, you know, uh, scarcity of archival sources was partly the reason why I decided to go for oral history. Um, when I first started researching this book, I read a lot of the Soviet literature. There's a lot of Soviet scholarly literature on intermarriage, ethnographic journals. And, you know, it was a very big topic in the Soviet Union, especially in the Brezhnev era. 
Uh, there was a lot of published material, but uh, when I went to look at um, archival material, I discovered that it was going to be quite difficult to get at the kinds of questions I wanted to answer using archives because uh, personal archives, the, the sorts of things that historians of, of, of the family use in other countries, you know, court records, uh, divorce records, you know, all sorts of personal files, um, they really can't be looked at uh, in uh, most uh, former Soviet countries uh, for 75 years. And um, the kinds of archival sources that were available, like at the ZAGS, uh, you know, the civil, uh, the archive of civil acts and, uh, um, and in the state archives were almost exclusively uh, sort of aggregate sources, statistics on intermarriage and things like that. And I wasn't really interested in having this be a statistical work or a work on, you know, how many intermarriages took place and how they increased or de decreased. That wasn't really my purpose. My purpose was to try to look more at the, well, part, partly at the scholar, how, how Soviet scholars approached intermarriage, but also I wanted to look mainly at how uh, mixed families and mixed couples in Soviet Central Asia experienced uh, their lives, their marriages, their families, uh, society's response to them and so forth. And I just found that I was not going to have, uh, I, I wasn't going to find that sort of information through archival sources. So I did turn to oral history, which was something new for me since my first book was mainly an archival book. But once I started doing it, I found that I was actually quite happy uh, doing this. I had been a journalist before I became an academic, and I liked talking to people. So, and I, I realized that perhaps, uh, perhaps it was nice after doing a mainly archival book to do a project that mostly involved, you know, sitting around drinking tea and uh, chatting with people. Okay, so um, why intermarriage, though? I mean, this is a particular research focus that. You know, it, it acted as a vehicle in the book for an argument that transcended revolution, war, desalinization, and independence in a part of the USSR that may be central to our professional interests, Adrienne, but is still fairly remote. So why do you think intermarriage was the necess necessary focus to tell the stories you want to tell? Well, I think... It, um Intermarriage in other, in, you know, historians and social scientists who've studied intermarriage in other parts of the world, there hasn't been very much done on, uh, on our part of the world. Um, historians in other parts of the world have found that intermarriage is, provides an interesting lens for looking at issues of ethnicity, of race, of uh, how people are classified, how people subjectively understand the way they're classified by the state and so forth. Um, intermarriage throws into sharp relief um, issues of identity that are normally taken for granted in daily life, such as how to name children, how to get along with in-laws and so forth. Certain, certain issues uh, uh, become... Um, uh, people are forced to think about them more, I guess I would say, um, uh, in, in mixed families. And so in other, in, uh, so historians, social scientists have found that intermarriage is sort of a lens for looking at, um, at these topics. And, uh, and what I found doing my research for this book, um, I was interested in using intermarriage as, as a lens for looking at, um, the lived experience of ethnicity in the Soviet Union, I guess I would say, or the lived experience of nationality, as they would have said in the Soviet Union, um, because people in mixed families simply had to think much more. Am I a Ukrainian or an Uzbek? Am I a Tatar or a Kazakh? Who am I? 
what do I put on my passport? Who should I marry? What religion should I practice? What should I name my children? All of these issues become much more problematic and I guess you could say interesting, contested in mixed families. So it's a, I, I guess uh, intermarriage uh, turned out to be an interesting lens for looking at a number of uh, topics that I find intriguing. Yeah, because if the focus it's about is about intermarriage, really, this is a book about ethnic mixing. So yes, mm-hmm. that's right. Yeah, and, and it's a book. This kind of mixing it, it's very intriguing as a process, and uh, it represents the fulcrum of the attention of your book. And what I liked is that the book does look at ethnic mixing not just from a couple perspective. So, you know, have husband and wife, mother and father, actually even the in-laws, which are all actors in this kind of ethnic in, uh, intermarriage. But it also the book looks at ethnic mixing, it delves into it from a deeply individual perspective. And so I found that, I mean, reading the book, to use the word of one of the colleagues who endorse the, the, the volume, is that there is this very perceivable and perceived gap between human experience and government policy. And this is a key issue at the core of your book. Could you please tell our listeners a little bit more about this? Uh, about this gap between, well, I, I, I assume this gap between uh, state policy and individual experience. Yes, that is one of the things that interested me most um, as I was researching this. Um, and uh, the individual experience often... Um, well, I found the individual experience captured most poignantly in many cases by the children of mixed marriages. Um, I interviewed a lot of people who were children of mixed marriage. I mean, adult children. I didn't interview any actual children, <laughs> grown up offspring of mixed marriages. Um, uh, and uh, in addition to interviewing mixed, mixed uh, members of mixed couples. And uh, when I interviewed the children of mixed marriages, this was when this was when I really found a gap between the way the Soviet state understood nationality and the way individuals understood nationality. Because uh, as you know, but as uh, perhaps not all of our listeners know, um, in the Soviet Union, every person was assumed to have a single nationality. Um, and they had to identify themselves at the age of 16 and place that nationality in their internal identity document, their, their passport. And uh, this posed a terrible conflict for some offspring of mixed marriages who had at least two nationalities that they could choose from. But in many cases, they had more than that. Often parents were mixed and they gave birth to (laughs) mixed children who had three, four different nationalities in their background. And, And these children were then forced to conform to the Soviet state ideal that every person was either Russian or Kazakh or some other singular nationality. So that, I think, that's perhaps the most, uh, I I guess I would say the the kind of most flagrant example of the way in which individual experience uh, uh, conflicted with, you know, state expectations. And you obviously talked to people of different generations, and uh, obviously different generations perceive the the same issues, the same processes, the same factors in very different ways. I mean, how did you explain that kind of uh, differences in in your approach? I mean, is that a finding which you expected or was were you surprised by dealing with the differences in which this kind of uh, you know, intermarriage as, as, as a phenomenon was perceived by people of different, different generations? 
I guess I should have expected it, just knowing what I know about Soviet history. But still, uh, some of the, the the way the way the generational changes came through were still, I guess, interesting. Perhaps not surprising, but just interesting that uh, you know, in the er- the earliest intermarriages that I examined were people who intermarried right after World War II um, or even during World War II, so 1940s, and these were mostly Russian women who were marrying Central Asian men, and um, at, at most, these women often describe having to adapt to the local, you know, the local culture, having to learn Uzbek or Tajik or Kazakh, having to live in the village, having to dress like a, you know, a, a Kazakh woman. And uh, uh, they describe uh, an experience of, I guess you'd say, assimilation to the dominant local culture uh, frequently, not always, but that's uh, some, that's a story that I heard, uh, heard, um, uh, frequently from those earlier intermarriages. Uh, the later generations, particularly people who intermarried in the 60s, 70s, 80s, they lived in a really different environment that was arguably much more Soviet. There was a lot more, uh, there was sort of a common, much more of a common multi-ethnic Soviet culture that had emerged, particularly in the cities of Central Asia by this time. It was a Rus- largely Russian-speaking culture in which people of many different nationalities, ethnicities uh, took part. And uh, for these people, um, the common Soviet culture, these these later generations, uh, the common Soviet culture really created the basis for them getting to know each other and also for them them to, um, uh, you created the basis for their family culture in many many ways. And obviously the the stories change very much whether the bride is, is Central Asian or she's Russian. And the other way, so you know, obviously, mixed intermarriage sort of work different way, whether or not you have a Russian Central Asian or or the other way around. I mean, so it becomes also a gender perspective book in that sense. Definitely, uh, definitely, mm-hmm. definitely. The uh, uh, the gender perspective is uh, well. I would say that throughout most of the Soviet period, which is the primary focus of my book, it was uh, almost always. Uh, Central Asian men who were uh, marrying um, Russian or Ukrainian or some other non non Central Asian women. It was the the gender imbalance in these marriages was quite striking um, throughout most of the Soviet period. I do have a few accounts of, of of Central Asian women in the late Soviet period who married you know Russian or other non Central Asian men. Uh, but this was pretty rare. One of the interesting things I found that I did not expect is that this gender dynamic has flipped, uh, has changed dramatically in the post-Soviet era. Now there are many more um, Central Asian women than previously uh, who are who are choosing to marry interethnically. So that's uh, that's something I talk about in the final chapter of the book. And that's precisely the the kind of information that statistics only don't reveal. So that's why, you know, there's a particular premium on, on your approach. And I mean, the, the book very much tells also a story about attitude towards relationship with people of other nationalities. And these are intimo, intimate, very meaningful, very personal relationships change as the, as the history of Kazakhstan and Tajikistan particularly unfolded. So can you tell us a little bit more about intermarriage became the sort of the backdrop to discuss why the processes, why they're changing in the history of these two central states. 
Uh, I'm sorry, I didn't quite understand the question. So, uh, how the the backdrop to to how intermarriage provided a backdrop to for change in these uh, two the, states? Or sorry about could you repeat the question? Yeah, no, sorry. The, the idea is that since you look at such a big, uh, pretty much a sixty years of history, really, intermarriage happened in the same place, Kazakhstan, Tajikistan, particularly, but in different periods. So it becomes an instrument to tell us to tell us how this idea of the Soviet person and the, the fading of the principle of internationalism actually happened. So I was wondering, can you tell us a little bit more about this? Yes, yes, okay, uh, definitely. So part of the idea or part of the interest, um, uh, my goal in the book was to st- tell this story of change over time. And what I did find, well, we already spoke about different generations and and their experiences, but I found also that changing views of nationality or ethnicity over the course of the post-war period in the Soviet Union and into the post-Soviet period, these changing views of nationality and ethnicity had a big impact on mixed families uh, and uh, individuals of of mixed heritage. And in particular, um, people have, other scholars have written, I'm not the first to say, to note that uh, there was an increasing ethnic Primordialism in the uh, in the um, uh, in the, in the final decades of the Soviet Union's existence, Terry Martin, Ron Suni, Mar- uh, Marlene Laguel, others have written about this. But I found it particularly interesting to see how this increasing primordialism was perceived by uh, mixed mixed families, mixed people, and how also it changed the way they were. Uh, uh, it changed the response of the state to them. And this really, uh, I describe it in my book as really a racialization of identities that um, increasingly national identity was being seen as um, immutable, as biological. And this particularly accelerated beginning in the 1960s with the concept of the ethnos. Uh, the, the term ethnos was used to mean kind of a an unchanging ethnic identity, a group with an unchanging ethnic identity over centuries or even millennia, which contrasted quite sharply with the early Soviet view of nationalities and ethnicities as being mainly cultural and historically determined. So you had this increasingly primordialized, arguably racialized view of nationality, of ethnicity coming to the fore in the final decades of the Soviet Union. And of course, mixed people, mixed families were really at the forefront of, uh, of feeling this, experiencing this, because, you know, if an identity is primordial, what happens if you have two identities? <laughs> you know, that, that doesn't quite work, <laughs> or four identities. Uh, if if uh, if if nations have immutable characteristics that are different from each other, as many people started, you know, wrote or believe seem to believe in the late Soviet period, then what happens if you have two completely different nationalities marrying each other and so forth? So you had, and then uh, and then ultimately in the post-Soviet period, this primordialization and racialization of ethnic identity really, in some in some republics, in some ways, turned into a uh, you know a kind of racist attitude toward. Uh, ethnic mixing and toward uh, mixed people, um, a xenophobic uh, repudiation of mixed marriages. In, um, and I think that you can really see that this, uh, some of the racism um, and uh, kind of xenophobic nationalism that you see in the post-Soviet period really has its roots in this, in this earlier period when, um, when nationality was starting to be seen in this more almost biological way. 
So when we look particularly at post-Soviet Kazakhstan and post-Soviet Tajikistan, did you detect many dif- significant differences in the way in which the practice of intermarriage evolved in the last 30 years? Uh, yes. I mean, what I, what I found was that although Kazakhstan and Tajikistan are very different kinds of places, of course, and that's partly why I chose these two republics to focus on was because they, they had different histories and, and different characteristics in the Soviet period. But I nevertheless found that throughout most of the Soviet period when I, uh, that I was writing about, um, there was a certain homogenizing effect of Soviet rule that tended to create similar experiences for mixed couples and mixed families. Because the Soviet Union, the Soviet state overwhelmingly welcomed and celebrated such marriages. They were a sign of internationalism, of the friendship of the peoples, as I say in the, uh, as in the title of the book. And um, people in, in Soviet Central Asia knew that these marriages were, you know, were, were, were a priority or a, you know, a, something positive in the view of the, of the state. And this helped to kind of smooth over any differences. But what happened in the post-Soviet era is the trajectories of Kazakhstan and Tajikistan with regard to mixed marriage diverged quite a bit. Kazakhstan has continued to have this sort of uh, multi-ethnic kind of happy multi-ethnic, this myth of happy multi-ethnicity, I guess we can call it. Um, this uh, uh, Eurasian, you know, we're a Eurasian country and we have, and we have, you know, we still welcome um, mixed marriages. And uh, they have, uh, in Kazakhstan, I think there's been more of an attempt to continue the Soviet narrative. Although uh, there are, of course, uh, many people in Kazakhstan who disagree with this. There are people in, and I do cite some articles from the Kazakh language press uh, in the post-Soviet period that are strongly opposed to mixed marriage. You know, they do take this kind of ethnic purity uh, notion that, that um, you know, that has become popular in some other uh, post-Soviet republics as well. But generally speaking, I think there is more continuity uh, between Kazakhstan, the Kazakh narrative of being a multi-ethnic Eurasian nation and the kind of Soviet people narrative, whereas Tajikistan has gone more in the direction of ethnic purity, uh, you know, and uh, wanting to reject intermarriage and preserve the gene pool of, of, of Tajikistan. And there have been political figures, cultural figures, uh, various people who, you know, who have argued, you know, against intermarriage in Tajikistan. And in Tajikistan, I think mixed couples and families have felt much more, much, sorry, much le- less welcome than uh, um, in, in the post-Soviet period than in Kazakhstan. So in that sense, and this will be my, my, my final question this afternoon, do you see the future for the, this practice of intermarriage being different whether we focus on Kazakhstan or on Tajikistan? In that sense, this kind of exclusionary discourse of you know, purity will influence how people in the future will approach this kind of in, interactive mixing. Yeah, I mean, I think it does affect how people view mixed couples. Um it may affect people's willingness to get married, although people have a strong tendency to try to marry who they want, regardless of what society tells them. Uh, and of course, there are lots of mixed marriages between Central Asians and, you know, and and 
non-Central Asians taking place outside of Central Asia as well. I mean, there are lots of marriages between Tajiks and Kyrgyz and Russians and so forth taking place in Russia. So uh, that's kind of a different story than the one I, I tell in my book. But um, yeah, I think that these differences uh, between Kazakhstan and Tajikistan do seem likely to continue for the for the foreseeable future and uh, one of the things that just really uh, that really struck me um when i as i was completing the book was uh was just that the the was just that it was uh well it just struck me as sort of sad that you know we we all expect a kind of eternal progress uh and things uh, moving in a good direction with regard to greater openness less racism uh more progressive ideas about you know ethnicity and and gender and so forth and and uh, and yet you can there are moments in history obviously where we go backwards uh, and I think the rejection of mixed marriages in some of the republics of the of the former Soviet Union is is just one example of that. I mean, although I mean, this is a point which you make many times in the book is that ultimately, you know, whether it's the case of the Central Asian man who returns from the war and brings over uh, a Russian girlfriend with him, or more recently, it's people of different nationalities, people do marry whoever they want. In this case, so you know, like I, the context may be different, but there would be more focus. I mean, more cases of this, you know, luckily. So, Adrian, thanks a lot for your time. Congratulations again on the, pub- on the publication of the book, and uh, we hope that our readers, our listeners, will become your readers by buying the book or making sure that they are more closer to your work. So, thanks for your time, and uh, I look forward to reading your future research. But for now, thanks again to Adrian Edgar, who is the author of Intermarriage and Friendship of the People, the book that we talked about today on the NBN Settlers of Studies. Thank you very much, Luca. It was a pleasure.